So those who are worshiping with us from home, I want you to do this with those who are worshiping here in the room. Would you please help me with this learning exercise for a moment? I want you to cross your arms. Go ahead, just fold your arms across your your chest, and chances are you have your left arm over your right arm. It may be different for you. Now I want to ask you to uncross your arms and fold them again, putting the other arm on top. Seems a little awkward, doesn't it? Uncomfortable, different, difficult, unnatural. You can stop at any time. (laughs) Well, we all get accustomed to the familiar and to that regular routine. And for most people, departures from the traditional are difficult to navigate. Change is challenging due to the uncertainty of adjustment to our established expectations. That's because over the years of our lifetimes, we've done one particular way which has become familiar, safe, and predictable. That's how traditions develop in our lives, in our families, in the church. Traditions can be good or bad. They only become bad if we place them above God's word. This morning, I want us to see that God's commands are more important than man's demands. Some Christians today seem to want to go back to the legalism of the the Old Testament law and live their lives on the basis of, of human tradition rather than God's word. In the Gospels, the Pharisees demonstrated that same preoccupation with keeping their man-made traditions. And many of these customs were were contrary to the scripture, which placed the the Pharisees in a direct opposition to Jesus and his teachings. So today I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to study one of those incidents that's outlined for us. And first, let's consider the trap of tradition. Please do not misunderstand. Not all tradition is wrong. Tradition can be good or tradition can be bad. The the danger is when we allow man-made traditions to supersede God's word. So tradition of itself is not evil. Our family, like yours, has a tradition each year at Christmas. We exchange gifts. I like that tradition. That's not wrong. There are many good traditions. The danger is when we let tradition trap us into believing that there's only one way of doing things. And when we allow tradition to prevent us from trying progressive ideas or or making improvements, that's when it becomes sin. Notice here in in Matthew chapter 12 the, the tradition of keeping the Sabbath day. This was the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Uh, On the Sabbath, the seventh day, it was Saturday, God ceased his creating. That's not because God was tired. It wasn't like, oh, what a week, man, all this creating. I I am worn out. I'm going to kick back today. I'm I'm just exhausted. That, That wasn't why he did it. Instead, he did it to establish this rhythm of rest and worship into our schedules. Observance of the Sabbath 
began following the Israelites' release from slavery in Egypt. And it served as a reminder to rest from their labor and to reflect on God. The Pharisees were guilty of making the Sabbath a burden, not a blessing. In an effort to more specifically define God's law, they made additional human laws. For example, they came up with the conclusion that anything as heavy as a dried fig was a burden, and therefore carrying it constituted work. So, however, it was no burden to carry half a fig. So, if, you know, if you're bringing fig newtons for lunch that day, just break them in half, and it was all, all legal in, in, in their way of thinking. Another example was fighting with the Syrians. Uh, the Pharisees at first refused to fight on the Sabbath. It, it's our, our day of rest. But when the Syrians continued to fight without taking a Sabbath, the Pharisees very quickly came up with a new tradition that the law might be suspended when life was in danger. Uh, another example of their hair-splitting additions to the Old Testament law was their ruling that it was okay to carry a needle which contained no eye, but if it had an eye in it, then you couldn't carry it because it was considered an instrument of work because it could be used for sewing, and therefore carrying such a needle constituted work and would be in violation of their Sabbath tradition. The Pharisees heaped their man-made demands on the people. Do you see how legalistic they became? Do you see how their traditions from a human standpoint cut far beyond God's restrictions for the Sabbath day? Instead of this relationship of obedient love for, for God that we've sung about this morning, all the, the songs really fit well with this theme and Chris's meditation ties right into this. All these man-made burdens and restrictions and stringent obligations went far beyond God's in intention. Let's, let's pick up in verse 1, Matthew 12. And at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pick some heads of grain and, and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look! Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Our first reaction might be, uh-oh, the disciples were stealing by taking the grain that wasn't their own. But, but that wasn't the case. Notice here in verse 2, the Pharisees did not charge the disciples with stealing. Under the Old Testament law, there was a provision that you could eat grain while you were traveling and walking through a field that that was okay. So they weren't charged with stealing. Instead, the, the, the Pharisees charged the disciples with breaking the Sabbath labor tradition by doing work on the Sabbath. They held that they were guilty of reaping, threshing, winnowing as they plucked the grain, rubbed it in their hands, blew off the chaff, and ate the grain. Let's keep going. Verse 3. Jesus answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? 
I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus gave other examples in in which it was permissible to violate the Pharisees' traditions. He talked about when King David and his army were famished and they ate some of the the showbread, similar to our communion bread, usually reserved for only the priest. And Jesus quizzed, did you never read? Well, the Pharisees discovered you don't want to play a game of Bible trivia with with Jesus. The the Pharisees who prided themselves in reading and and knowing the minutia of Scripture, unfortunately had no true sense of, of understanding of the intent of Scripture. Jesus pointed out that the the Jewish priests led worship on Saturdays, but they were not doing wrong. And this, this had to be majorly frustrating since you know, Jesus created the Sabbath, right? He, he knew what the intention was behind it, what he had in mind. And these arrogant, deluded dissectors of the law are telling him how it was to be done. And Jesus reminded these religious extremists that he, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, the fourth command did not forbid labor absolutely. It forbid labor for worldly gain. Activity in the work of God was both allowed and commanded. Listen to verses 9 and following. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Again, they tried to entrap him. Knowing Jesus and his compassion, he'd see this crippled individual. He'd want to help him. He'd want to fix it. But that would be work in their estimation on the Sabbath. And he said to them, "Uh, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit, on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Well, that's work, right? But it's kind of an emergency, so it's okay. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? He said, you don't want me to help this guy because it's Saturday? He says, therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Uh, Enough is enough. We've had it up to here. This guy has to go. He's making us look bad. Uh, We're going to eliminate him. And that's really what started in motion this determination to, to take Jesus out. We don't care if you are the son of God. If you get in the way of our traditions, we will kill you, reasoned the Pharisees. That's the trap of tradition, wanting and insisting on our way of doing things can supersede God's will for doing things. 
Carl Ketcherside tells of a, a young girl who was puzzled as she watched her mother cut a roast in half before placing it in the oven. Why do you always do that? I've seen my mother do that dozens of times, and she was an excellent cook. So when the girl saw her grandmother, she asked, Grandma, why do you always cut the roast in half before baking it? Well, my mother always cooked it like that, and so that's why I do it. So then the girl approached her great-grandmother and said, Why do you always cut the roast in half before baking it? Oh, the great-grandmother explained, I just never had a pan large enough to hold the whole roast. And often we cling tenaciously to traditions that are absolutely meaningless. So beware of the trap of tradition. But also we must guard against the satisfaction with the status quo. Being satisfied with the way things are, being so uncomfortable and unwilling to change or try to change any progressive alternative. Several years ago, a, a book was written with an insightful title. It was called The Seven Last Words of the Church, and then the subtitle was We Never Did It That Way Before. Back in the early 80s, a friend of mine was a youth minister at a, a small town church in southwestern Ohio. At his church, it was their policy that when a young person was baptized, he or she received a copy of the King James Version Bible. It didn't make any difference that the kids were having a hard time understanding the Shakespearean English of the 1611 translation. He was told to give the kids a KJV. And so Chris requested permission to give the children the new international version instead. It's more conversational, more the way we talk today. And, and they said, well, we don't think that's a, a good idea. We don't want you to do that. He said, if I can prove to you that, that this is acceptable, would you consider it? They go, well, we'll, we'll consider it. So Chris undertook a three-month letter-writing campaign, information-gathering effort, amassing documentation from Bible college presidents and professors who stated that the scholarship of the NIV was on a level equal to or surpassing that of the 1611 KJV. He presented it to the church leaders and, and asked for permission to hand out the easy-to-understand NIV Bible instead of the King James Version. They studied the information and came back, and, and this was their conclusion. From now on, when a young person is baptized, you can give him or her a copy of the NIV and a copy of the KJV Bible. If we're not careful, we can get so satisfied with the status quo, the way we've always done things, that we refuse to make needed improvements that are obvious. It's one matter to have a preference. It's something entirely different when we make our opinions a matter of fellowship. Uh, we talked last week about how our church is a part of an effort called the Restoration Movement, an attempt to restore the modern church, fashioning it as closely as possible after the early church of the, the first century. And last week we, we learned this relevant slogan was 
coined in essentials, unity, in opinions, liberty, in all things, love. That still is a great target for us to, to cite in our scope. Another friend of mine at a church ironically named Liberty faced an unexpected conflict when following a baptism they had, had always sung victory in Jesus and one Sunday changed it up and they, they sang now I belong to Jesus. Well, this member was irate and following the conclusion of the service, he began to shout, We sang, Now I Belong to Jesus. We're supposed to sing victory in Jesus. His adult daughter tried to reason with her father, Daddy, isn't the important thing that someone was, uh, obeyed Christ and was baptized? No, he shouted, using profanity for emphasis. The important thing is that we're supposed to sing victory in Jesus. You see how our staunch insistence on our preferences can sometimes cause us to, to miss the main thing? We need to guard against the trap of tradition. Be aware of satisfaction with the status quo. And, and finally, we need to realize that, that change is challenging. The first time my wife, Johnny, came to eat dinner with my family when we were 18 and beginning to date, she wasn't quite sure what to think. At the end of the meal, my brother Dave and I each exchanged glances, and then in unison, we crumpled our paper napkins, and then in a silent, synchronized move, in tandem, we each shot our basketball-like projectiles from the dining room into the kitchen where both crumpled napkins, landed on linoleum, and skidded across the floor, coming to rest in a corner. We asked to be excused, got up, each picked up our fallen napkins, opened the cabinet on the right side of the kitchen sink, and then threw them away, returned to our seats, as usual, in the, in the dining room. Johnny had a confused expression on her face as she tried to process this unusual display that she had just witnessed. She looked at me with a quizzical expression, seeking some logical explanation for why we had suddenly thrown our napkins across the room onto the floor. I pointed to the place where our crumpled napkins had landed and explained simply, we used to have a trash can there. <laughs> Even as teens, we had grown accustomed to doing things a certain way and we were exerting a, a mild form of resistance to the prescribed change of our familiar routine. Change is always challenging. Leighton Ford once observed, the church can make two mistakes, the mistake of changing its message or the mistake of refusing to change its methods. We need to use modern tools to keep pace with an ever-changing world. Change is challenging, but nothing ventured, nothing gained. Christ calls us to leave our comfortable security and plunge ahead into the unfamiliar. Chuck Swindoll reminded, 
We are all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. The way we do ministry today has changed so much over the 40 years since I graduated from Cincinnati Bible College. Black rotary phones have given way to to cell phones. Stencils and messy mimeograph machines have been replaced by fax machines that have been replaced by color laser printers. Flannel graph, my childhood favorite, has been updated with video capability and PowerPoint in the classrooms. Lecture style sermons have been modified to messages with video clips and and drama. Single worship services have been adjusted to offer multiple worship services and provide more opportunities to more people. Singing from hymnals has been changed to enhanced projection and screens. And, and I noticed today even moving scenes of nature and water and, 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 and breezing through the leaves. Uh, the Apostle Paul never saw that coming. So, uh, Public address systems have become sophisticated sound systems. Highly visible microphone cords have been improved with wireless technology. Audio tapes have been outdistanced by CDs and MP3s. Suits, clergy, and choir robes have been replaced for more casual clothing styles. Gravel parking lots have been replaced by paved asphalt parking lots. Color nature scenes on the the cover of the bulletin have been transformed to trifold worship guides designed to convey more information. Planning calendars have given way to Palm Pilots and now to smartphones. Stained glass design has changed to windowless construction. Video messages are, are being used by churches. And I think a lot of people were surprised during COVID to, to find that God still showed up through the medium of video that was as effective as live preaching. Last month, we had uh, over 15 decisions made for for Christ uh, with Decision Day and that emphasis. And there were three people who were baptized who are watching our services online and were were moved to to action watching a, a video rather than being present in this room. Saturday night worship services have been added uh, to other church church worship schedules in an effort to reach more lost people with the gospel. Some may instinctively object that at first, as I did with suspicion, thinking we're commanded to worship on Sunday and that church must be going liberal. But a closer examination of scripture reveals we were never commanded to worship God only on Sunday. Consider this context. In the Old Testament, people worshiped on Saturday to remember a finished creation. In the New Testament, Christians worshiped in the temple courts on Sunday, presumably because that was the day Jesus resurrected from the grave. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 states, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And Paul spoke to the people Because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. They met at Troas at night. 
So the question is, was it Saturday night or was it Sunday night when they began that all-nighter before Paul left? The, the Jewish reckoning of time begins a new day at, at dusk of the night before. In other words, if it were dusk at 6 p.m. on Friday, the Sabbath has started. Remember how Jesus was taken down from the cross before sundown? So we're not sure if at Troas they met on a Saturday night or, or on a Sunday night. Meeting on Sundays was a, a precedent, not a command. Worship was never confined to one day of the week. In fact, it tells us in, in Acts 2, verse 46, that the first century church met every day. It says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate with glad and sincere hearts. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In the Old Testament, one-tenth of people's money belonged to God. In the New Testament, all of your money belongs to God. In the Old Testament, one day the Sabbath belonged to God. In the New Testament, every day belongs to God. Listen to Romans 14, verses 4 through 6. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. It's saying if in your conscience you have only one day that you can worship, then you should be true to your conscience, but do so without judging someone who chooses to worship another day. Understand the freedom we have in Christ, and worshiping on the first day of the week is a good tradition, yet we are free to worship Christ anytime, every day. I think another change that churches have seen is pews have, have gone to stacking chairs and and some have morphed into theater seats. You remember those popsicle stick fans advertising the, the local funeral homes? Thankfully, they have been replaced with the, the widespread appeal of central air conditioning. Traditional hymns have been joined by contemporary praise choruses. iPhones, interactive apps, Twitter are all being utilized to share the gospel. Interactive messages have begun to emerge, providing immediate feedback and participation. We are charged with telling the timeless, old, old story in a language and style that connects with those who are hearing it today for the very first time. You may not realize the backstory of the familiar hymn, A Mighty Fortress, a mighty fortress is our God. I can still hear that being played on the giant pipe pipe organs at chapel at, at Bible college. Well, the lyrics to that song were written by Martin Luther, but did you realize that it was a popular tune that he extracted 
from the, the pubs. It was a, a beer drinking anthem. Can you imagine people with their steins, you know, ah, yeah, 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 singing the original lyrics? But he thought that tune was a good way to convey the message of, of God. So he added his Christian lyrics and it became a, a standard for, for all hymns. It would be the equivalent today of someone writing a, a praise and worship song to the tune of the Macarena. You know, that's, that's basically what he did. He took a song from pop culture and rewrote the lyrics. Luther saw a way to, to link God's message in a format that would connect with the common man. Or, or maybe YMCA would be a song that he would use. Well, as a church, we've been through a number of changes. And I want to say thank you for trusting and supporting your leaders at BCC. We've seen God bless our efforts to, to build a bridge that is especially designed to appeal to those who do not yet know the Lord or to those who've been disenfranchised from, from organized religion. We can fall prey to, to making the incidental trappings the focus of our worship when they're only designed to be the peripheral supports, the, the training wheels, the, the aids or, or the assists. Preferences are permitted, not preeminent. We must not allow Satan to divide Christ's body, the church, over personally held preferences or opinions. Years ago, when Southeast Christian Church had just moved into their second building, it was their first Easter weekend, and they had a record 9,000 people in attendance for worship. They had so many people that they ran out of bulletins. And after the service, one negative individual was heard carping, can you believe it? They ran out of bulletins. You think they would have printed extra bulletins for Easter, but can you believe that? Well, I hope we can all agree that you don't have to hold a bulletin in your hand in order to worship the Lord. Some Sunday at Batesville, we may dispense with using bulletins for a week, just to remind us that they are a helpful aid to worship, but they are not an indispensable necessity. Worship would go on without a bulletin. I, I rather doubt that the, the first Christians were dependent on having bulletins in, in order to worship. I, I don't think the Apostle Paul ever told the church at Thessalonica, Worship services are canceled today because the risograph broke down on Friday when we were printing the bulletins, and without any bulletins, we can't have worship. I feel pretty certain that never happened. Always remember that these external tools are the supports, the props that may aid or enhance or facilitate our worship efforts, but they are not central, required, or essential to worship. Change is challenging. Would you please memorize this important truth? Methods are many. Say that with me. Methods are many. Principles are few. Principles are few. Methods always change. Methods always change. Principles never do. Methods are many. Principles are few. Methods always change. Principles never do.
Some fear that if we accommodate to, to meet the culture, that we are in danger of compromising our stand on our message. I think the, the best example of changing our methods without changing our, our message can be found in that favorite breakfast cereal, Wheaties. When I was growing up, the, the Breakfast of Champions cereal box posted the smiling faces of current sports legends like Johnny Bench, Bruce Jenner. That was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> Bill Walton. And that, that packaging sold the, the cereal of the 70s, but perceptive marketing teams realized those icons from the past won't connect with today's kids. There's a new generation of consumers, and so now on the cover of the current Wheaties box, you'll see Tiger Woods or LeBron James or Michael Phelps. But do you realize that the contents of Wheaties hasn't changed? The cover of the box has changed to connect with our current culture and reach those to whom they intend to market their product, but the contents, those grains of, of wheat in a crunchy, flaky texture are, are unchanged. Our, our message of Christ's sinless sacrifice on the cross to save the human race, to call us back into a restored fellowship with our Heavenly Father, our, our message will never change here. Our, our methods, the way we do church, will always be changing, and, and so they should. Would you raise your hand if you really like Wheaties cereal? Just a quick. All right, you don't have to, Ron. Come on down, come on down. I have a gift for you, and this has Michael Jordan on the cover. Ron, I saw that hand go up pretty fast. Enjoy. I just ask that you don't eat during the service. <laughs> Breakfast of Champions, please wait until uh, after service during, during our, our break. You can get some milk there. So. I also hope that after today's object lesson, you will never be able to look at a box of Wheaties in Kroger again without remembering the fact that our, our message will never change. Our, our methods must always change. Church is not just for us who are here today. Uh, we're trying to reach those who have not yet heard uh, the gospel of the Lord and, and bring them in into the family. And so as we hand off the gospel to the next generation, things will look different. There will be in inevitable style changes. But I want to assure you that the future of the church is in good hands. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we know at times we can get in a habit or in a rut or used to doing things one way and they're familiar to us and it's just easier to keep it that way and and so Lord help us to be willing to boldly risk and take steps of faith and and change in order to reach more people with your message before your son's return Lord, help us to each examine our own hearts today and, and be sure that we're not being like the Pharisees, uh, more caught up in uh, being regulators, and may we be more interested 
in, in that relationship with you. We pray in, in the name of Jesus, our liberator. Amen.